Let's stand and read together our text this morning. It's from John chapter 5, probably a, a familiar story. I think one of those great stories of Jesus' interaction um, again with a sinner as a friend of sinners. Let's read together. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Want to, uh, I want to, to give you a question this morning and have you ask your neighbor what they think. We're only going to take a couple of minutes on this. Um, God has changed some directions here for me this morning, and I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But you notice the question that Jesus asked, Sir, do you want to get well? Now, John tells us that this guy had been an invalid for 38 years. He's probably been laying around this pool a lot. Some of the manuscripts that we have in the Christian tradition add a footnote that this was a pool that was stirred from time to time by an angel, and the first person who got into the pool would be healed. Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? And he said, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Now, I want you to ask your neighbor, is that a strange response to Jesus' question? Do you want to get well? I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Ask your neighbor, is that a strange response to that question? Or does it seem a reasonable response? Why do you think he responded that way? Just talk for a minute. Okay. There is a lot of discussion going on here. Okay, what do you think? What about the response? Reasonable? How so, John? Maybe. Okay. Okay, maybe so. What else? Yes, but he didn't say that. Okay. 
he made an excuse of sorts. Do you think? Do you think it was an excuse of sorts? Say what? Say again. Self-pitying, Laura. Okay, maybe so, Laura. Maybe so. Yeah, Mark. Mark says no, 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 no. <laughs> Okay, okay, all right, that's fine. Rick. Okay, okay. All right, good. Steve? Okay, possibly. Okay, Alfredo. There's a thought. Okay. Okay, okay. Donna? Well, I think he had a lot of faith in the water. He might have seen a lot of people being healed. Okay. Thirty-eight years. Opportunity to see this happen. Okay, okay. Yeah, what did... Oh, go ahead, Jill. Okay. Why did Lee? One more thing. Okay. Sure. 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 Okay. May have been more. May have been more. And and what did John leave out here in terms of? what I would think might be an expected response from Jesus. What does Jesus not say? Get up and get in the water? How about, forget the water, do you know who I am? That's what I'm looking for here. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. When... When Kelsey was about 14 years old, she, uh, I had been telling her for years that boys are bad. <laughs> I mean, that's just standard protocol, you know? Fathers of daughters understand this. Right. Yeah, boys are bad. And, uh, and so, you know, we'd had that conversation many times, and finally, I, Kelsey looked at me and said, well, how do you know this? And I, and I thought, really? And I said, look at me, how do I know this? Boys are bad, and... And, and that led into the next part of the conversation where I told her, I said, honey, you need to understand that boys your age only think about one thing. She looked at me. She said, come on, Dad. I said, no, really. They only think about one thing. She knowing what the one thing is that I'm talking about. And she said, Dad, come on. She said, all the boys that are my friends are Christians. I said, are you serious? 
And you think that makes a difference? said, honey, here's the difference. The boys that are your friends that are Christians, they all know that they should be thinking about something else besides that one thing. And they try really hard not to just think about one, that one thing. But most of the time it doesn't work and they still think about just that one thing. And she looked at me and she rolled her eyes, as she often did and still does, and said, Dad, you are so weird. And the fact is, I might be, but I'm right. (laughs) A person's ability to think and act according to their thinking comes into our consideration as we talk about being friends of sinners. And and Jesus was was so good at this. we're going we're gonna to do some more with this, this next week, to be quite honest. I want you to think more about this conversation this week. The expectations that Jesus brought to this conversation, what are the expectations that we bring to the conversations that we have with people who are quote-unquote sinners? And, and I think that expectations and, and how we understand person's responses, how we anticipate their response where they're coming from, their thought process, that is huge in determining our expectations from them. Because if you're like me, expectations get me into trouble. If my expectations don't fit the scenario, if my expectations don't fit where that person is coming from and how they think and view life, then I can be disappointed, I can be angry, I can be downright appalled, depending on what I have brought to that situation. Jesus, you remember, was given that title, friend of sinners by the authorities of the day, the religious authorities. It was not a compliment, and yet it so wonderfully captures the heart of God and the mission that God has for lost people in a broken world through his Son. And if you'll allow me just to point out the obvious, because you know that's my spiritual gift and I use it all the time, Jesus was called a friend of sinners, I'm suspicious, because he spent a lot of time with those who were considered to be sinners. And so that's why we have been spending some time ourselves on this topic, because we talk a lot about being fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ here at Applewood. That's written down somewhere. And, and we talk about that, and if we're going to be fully devoted followers of Jesus, then I think being a friend of sinners is a huge part of being a fully devoted follower of Jesus because Jesus was a friend of sinners and if we're going to be his followers... Okay, you're tracking with me. You know where that goes. And our definition of sinner, we've kept very simple for this series. It's someone who doesn't know Jesus. It's someone who doesn't follow Jesus. As followers of Jesus, it's, it's not that we're not sinners. It's not that we are immune from sin. We're not exempt from sinning. We're not free from the effects or the impact of sin in this broken world, but we have an understanding that our sins have been atoned for in Christ. We think differently about life because of what Jesus has done for us. And we understand that the essence of sin can be stated in in one simple sentence. And I think this is really important for us to remember 
as we, as we push down this path of what does it mean to be an effective friend of sinners? Sin, in a simple sentence, is living for self versus living for God. Living for self versus living for God. The fundamental difference between followers of Jesus and those who are not is that followers of Jesus understand that they were created to live for God and for His glory. And they strive to do that. They don't do it perfectly. They strive to do that every single day of their lives through everything that they say and everything that they do. God and His glory is the focus of the life of the follower of Jesus. Not self, not personal glory. We learned in Romans 8 that the ability to think this way and to live for the glory of God is a gift of His grace. Followers of Jesus have the ability to choose. Paul, you remember, referred to it as freedom from bondage to the sin nature. Those who put their faith in Jesus, death and resurrection as payment for their sin, have their minds renewed. They can think differently. They have the ability to think differently. It's so important that we understand that. The ability that it comes from the gift of God's grace to see ourselves for who we are, to see ourselves and others for who we were created to be, and to live accordingly. So, in a theological nutshell, where we've been is, we've said that followers of Jesus know how life is supposed to be lived. We do. We know how life is supposed to be lived. Jesus is our example. And we also have the power, the Spirit of God, indwelling us in order to accomplish that. So, the $10,000 question then is, if we're followers of Jesus and this is true, are we friends of sinners? Mark Buchanan, some of you may know the name as a pastor, who describes a time that he was visiting the prayer meeting at the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And he said, it felt like skydiving into a tornado, exhausting and exhilarating all at once. He said, I'd read Pastor Symbola's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, but nothing prepared me for the event itself. 3,500 God-hungry people storming heaven for two hours. Any of you have ever been to the Brooklyn Tabernacle's prayer service on a Tuesday night? It is just as he describes. It is unbelievable. Afterward, he said, I went out to dinner with the symbolists. And in the course of the meal, Jim turned to me and he said, Mark, do you know what the number one sin of the church in America is? I wasn't sure. And the question was rhetorical anyhow. Jim goes on to say, it's not the plague of internet pornography that is consuming our men. It's not the divorce rate in the church that's roughly the same as society at large. He named two or three other candidates for the worst sin, all of which he dismissed. The number one sin of the church in America, he said, is that people are not on their knees crying out to God, bring us the drug addicted, bring us the prostitutes, bring us the destitute, bring us the gang leaders, bring us those with AIDS, bring us the people nobody else wants, only those whom you can heal and let us love them in your name until they are whole. Friends of sinners. Let's not glamorize this. It's what it is. Friends of sinners. He says, I had no response. I was undone. He had laid me bare. He had found me out. He exposed my fraud. 
I felt like the chief of sinners. I had never prayed, not once, for God to bring such people to my church. So I went home and I repented and I stopped sinning and I began to cry out for those that nobody wants. My friends, how about us? If we're really devoted followers of Jesus, then we are serious about being friends of sinners and, and sinners are those without Jesus and sometimes that takes us down paths that are really uncomfortable. Paths that we might even deem as risky. Paths that might open us up to ridicule from others because we are spending our time and our energy and our resources in that way. Jesus didn't care. He was a friend of sinners. My suspicion is that sometimes we are friends of sinners and sometimes we're not. Because the truth is, in order to be effective friends of sinners, we have to come to grips with some of the barriers that are in our hearts. And we've looked at a couple. Subtle, not so subtle sometimes, ways of thinking and categorizing people. The barrier of personal pride in our own righteousness. We looked at that. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? Thank you, God, that I'm not like these people. We dare, dare not, ever forget that the only righteousness we have is Christ's righteousness. An undeserved gift from God, if we are deluded enough to somehow think we're better than ourselves, then we need to think again. Because we are not God's gift of grace to us is the only thing that we have to boast about. There's also the barrier of of judging others on the basis of their sin. And, And here's where I'm shifting direction a little bit this morning. Early this morning, I clearly sensed the Spirit of God saying to me, you need to spend a little more time right there on that one. And I said, but Lord, that really doesn't fit my plan for the morning. And he said, I really don't care about your plan for the morning. So I've, I've made some changes, and, and I believe that they're consistent with, with a point that God has, has really been weighing on my heart, and, and especially given the events of the weekend and, and Rick alluded to this as he welcomed you this morning. I, I want to ask you what I think is really an important question. And you don't need to answer it out loud. In fact, don't answer it out loud. Just think, think carefully and think honestly about your response. How are you feeling today about James Holmes? The man who walked into the theater ruthlessly killed 12 people, injured almost 60 others. What are the emotions that sort of, sort of rise up in you? You see that name, you see that face. Feelings perhaps of anger too. Just horror that somebody could be that awful? Products of a broken world. Feelings and emotions that rise up inside of us that are are strong and and passionate and and rooted, I think, in our understanding of of what justice is and and a longing for it. Even even in our broken world, the, the effect of what we call 
the common grace of God still allows people, not all people, but many people, to think correctly about right or wrong. And, and in our minds, we know that what this young man has done is wrong. It is terribly, terribly wrong. That's just not normal behavior. And our thinking tracks along that way. And because we know that it's desperately, terribly wrong, we so want things to be right. And in the minds of many, and as you read some of the comments and some of the blogs, this will not be made right until this man is dead. Imprisoned for life or executed. Now, I'm not here to make a statement about what should happen to this man. That's for our judicial system to decide. But what I'm concerned about is the feelings that initially rise up in my spirit and perhaps the feelings that initially rise up in yours. You know, our lesson last Sunday had to do with the followers of Jesus not judging others. Are you kidding? I want to judge. I want to be the jury. I want to convict. And some of you can relate to that passion. Remember Jesus' words to his followers. Matthew 7 From the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Mount, remember, go back to the first part of chapter 5, it was written to his followers. It was not written to governments. It was not written to communities. It was not written as a mandate for the world. It was written for the followers of Jesus. And he said to them, do not judge. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And we learn that the word that he's talking about there is, don't write people off based on what they do and say. Does that mean that we don't get angry about the horrible things that happen? No, I don't think it means that. Does it mean that we not grieve deeply over that kind of sickness and brokenness? No, I don't think it means that either. But what it does mean is that we don't pronounce a verdict. We don't sentence that person based on their actions in the same way that Jesus said to the woman who was dragged before him last week, supposedly caught in adultery, after her accusers had slipped away, has no one condemned you? Same word. Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Followers of Jesus do not condemn others. They do not write others off on the basis of their actions. Followers of Jesus know that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. They also know that but for God's grace, listen to this carefully, they are no different in their standing before God as those who are lost and broken, like James Holmes. I really hate that truth. And I'm guessing that some of you do as well. Because the thought comes rushing into my head, and maybe yours too, but but my sins aren't that bad. You know, I mean, if if this woman really was an adulteress, you know, that's not as impactful as what this man has done. Sociologically speaking, that's true. You know, in terms of, human-to-human impact, that's probably true. 
But theologically speaking, from the perspective of redemption, it is absolute heresy. I don't know, John. I don't know. But I know that it's important. It's important that we understand Christ's death as atonement for the broken, rebellious, sinful condition of humanity. Again, Romans 8 taught us that. You recall? Those who have not been redeemed by the grace of God are all in one category. They have, according to Paul in Romans 8, they have hostile minds. And they are enemies of God. Whether they have murdered or committed adultery or cheated on their income tax, these actions all come from a heart that is in rebellion against God. It's not the actions that are the problem. It's the heart that produces the actions. Christ died to atone the sinful heart. God does not grade sins on a curve. And we need to be very, very cautious in how we think about that. He grades the human condition. Pass or fail. And pass only comes to those who have received His free gift of grace through Jesus Christ. You see, if we don't affirm this, then what happens is that we we minimize the grace of God toward those who have never sinned in a huge and gross way. You know, it's as if Jesus shed less blood for my sins than he did for Lee's sins. And, and, and as silly as we know that is, that is sometimes our thinking if we really listen to how we express ourselves or if we give attention to the feelings that arise. And if we're not careful, that kind of thinking can, can lead us to think things like, I would never do something like that which then justifies our harsh thoughts towards those who do. He is a far worse person than I am. Well, at this point in my life, his actions towards society are far worse than mine. But in the eyes of God, we're in the same place apart from the grace of God. It's a hard truth, and I hope that I'm not offending anyone. But, but I've already heard Christians responding in ways that communicate this kind of thinking as they think about what should happen to James Holmes. Steve Brown, I think I've told some of you this story. Pastor in a seminary years ago was listening to these young seminarians as they ranted and raved in a case scenario about a pastor who had, who had fallen from his position, had been removed from his position because of, of sexual immorality. And he said, essentially, they were tarring and feathering this individual, hanging him out to dry, no mercy. Steve Brown said, finally, I just had to stop the class. Where was the mercy? Where was the grace? Where was the willingness to try to, to understand the pain that had driven this man to do what he did? No excuses, just a, a willingness to understand what has happened. 
he told the young seminarians, he said, you know, folks, I've got to be honest with you. He said, I don't think any of you has lived long enough or sinned grossly enough to really have any kind of an opinion on this topic. I think we as God's people must never, ever underestimate the sin that the human heart is capable of. Do I hate what this guy has done? Oh, my gosh, yes. Is it horrific tragedy? Is my heart broken for the families of those who have lost people that they love? Yeah. Is there place in my heart to despise this man as the enemy and as evil? Yeah. That rises to the surface too. And then the Spirit of God says, Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Let's remember who it was that Jesus hung on that cross for. God doesn't grade on a curve. He grades on the condition of the human heart. And mine, mine is an undeserved recipient of his grace. And that should shape the way that I, at the very least, respond in my own heart and pray for this man. Praise team, why don't you come on up and prepare to to lead us in what I just think is an incredible song. Friend of sinners, Jesus, friend of sinners. Our response, my brothers and sisters, to this terrible tragedy is indeed one of, of horror. We are just horrified this can happen. I think it is right for us to feel a sense of loss, loss of deep and deep pain for those who've lost loved ones, for those who are still injured physically, and for those who will be injured emotionally for, for a long, long time. And continue, continue to pray for them. And I would challenge you, I would challenge you, as, as Rick mentioned this morning, to add James Holmes to your prayers. He is a broken, terribly, terribly broken individual. But, yes, Mary, exactly. His family, all those who are broken as a result of this activity, pray, pray for God's grace upon their lives. Pray for God's redemption upon their lives. If We must remember that, that, that he is made in the image of God. He is someone whom God loves and for whom Christ died. And if you're tempted to think that somehow he's beyond the saving grace of God, then you just do not understand grace very well. If you think that he does not deserve God's grace, well, you're right. He doesn't. And I would invite you, along with myself, to look in a mirror and to give thanks for the grace that was shown to that person there because... They did not deserve his grace either. May we pray faithfully for God's grace on all who are a part of this tragic situation.